Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I've entitled this uh, Christ and Culture because partly what's happening in the book of Corinthians is a kind of culture clash and a shaping of culture. In the 1960s and 70s, with the Vietnam War, the sexual revolution, women's liberation, the rise of the drug culture, uh, we had what we call the cultural revolution. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the phenomena called the Jesus people that came about, um, that it was youth culture meets the church, And I was kind of caught up in all of that. I didn't understand all these forces that were happening. Um, There was a group of us that came together and began to live together and worship together. And we were trying to make our way through the kind of confusing maze of various denominations. Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement had arisen. And several of us went to see the Franco Zeffirelli film, The Brother, Son, Sister Moon, and we thought, oh, well, we should do that, you know, go out and live in a commune. And at, at the same time, uh, several of us went to the local community college there in uh, Great Bend, Kansas, to hear a man named Larry Norman. You prob- He may be the most uh, obscure, famous person there is. Um, He wasn't singing, and that's what he's a musician, uh, but he was just speaking, and he's considered the the key figure. He is kind of the father of the fusion of rock and roll with Christian music. Um, So if there is a father of the contemporary music scene, uh, Christian music scene in the church, it would be this guy, Larry Norman. And he sang and wrote music for the uh, nearly all the top groups of the 60s and 70s. Uh, he recorded at the same studio as the Beatles and knew the Beatles. And even that evening he told a story. And I can't quite remember what, which of the Beatles it was, but they had kind of formed a friendship. And then Larry Norman asked him for his autobot, or rather his uh, autograph, rather. And... He, the, I can't remember if it was John Lennon, but he said his whole countenance changed, you know, that it kind of broke the friendship. So he would never, at that little meeting, he never, there was only a few of us there that evening, but he wouldn't sign autographs or anything like that. Paul McCartney told him, if you would just drop the God stuff, get rid of all the Jesus stuff, you could probably be very, very famous. Strangely, even Billy Graham, he went and talked to Billy Graham and played at the venue where Billy Billy Graham was. He told him, well, maybe your lyrics are too Christian. Maybe you need to be a little more subtle, you know. Jimmy Carter had him play at the White House, and even the vice president, Mike Pence, today, uh, says that he became a Christian at an event where Larry Norman was, was featured. Maybe the title and lyrics of what may be his most popular song 
get at the fusion of two cultures, two genres of music that he was trying to, to bring about. He says, he sings, I want the people to know that he saved my soul, but I still like to listen to the radio. They say rock and roll is wrong. Well, give you, we'll give you one more chance. I say I feel so good that I got to get up and dance. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I don't confuse it. All I'm really trying to say is why should the devil have all the good music? I feel good every day because Jesus is the rock and he rolled my blues away. <laughs> um, I don't know how this compares with a mighty fortress is our God, you know, <laughs> or the great hymns of the church. But what is happening and, and what Larry Norman is, is representative of is this uh, Christians attempting to negotiate culture. And of course, that's what's happening in the book of Corinthians. Uh, how are we to negotiate this? And Paul is giving us some, some recommendations. And of course, first of all, culture just simply consists of what people do, the shared practices of people. It's language, uh, the language of the world in which we consist. We can't shed culture. We're all part, raised in a particular culture. Maybe part of it's bad, maybe some of it's benign or unavoidable, and part of it may be very good. But the question is, how do we negotiate the culture of which we are a part and which really has formed and shaped us? And so what's happening in Corinthians is the forging of the people of God, the culture of Christ, from out of the cultures of Corinth. And there are multiple streams of culture, you know, Jewish, Gentile, pagan, uh, wealthy, poor, all coming together. So let's look. I'm going to read just the opening verse here, but then I'll come back to the, the opening section. Um, starting with verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, people from, he says, every place are being brought together, and he'll say right after this, to share in the mind of Christ. You know, we know that there's divisions here. Sosthenes, you may remember um, from the book of Acts, was actually the head of the synagogue there. And uh, when Paul, remember, is driven out of the synagogue or out of Corinth, uh, the Greek mob who disliked the Jews, they took Sosthenes, the ruler of the Jewish synagogue, and beat him. Now that's the end of the story in Acts, but some way Sosthenes, and we assume it must be the same guy, same name, same place, is now the co-author of the book of Corinthians. 
And so at some point, maybe in the past 10 years, the chief of the synagogue, and we know there are two now, two rabbis who were the chief of the synagogue in Corinth, have now become Christians. Um, That maybe, you know, Paul had shown sympathy for him immediately after this. We don't know what the occasion was, why he became a, a, a Christian. Welcome. Uh, And Crispus is also the chief ruler of the synagogue who had also been converted. And Saul, you know, turned into Paul, the apostle. And so we, uh, Sosthenes, the leader, uh, had actually been the leader in the persecution against Paul. So the point is, the gospel which Paul preaches is in continual confrontation with the culture. It is continually being resisted. And how is it that Paul handles this? Corinth and the very people he is writing to have been on the front lines of this resistance and the very people that were part of the persecution. These people are being sanctified. That's the word that he used. You're being sanctified for Christ. Let me read, go on reading here. Um, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So Paul's great effort here is that these people from high class, low class, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, pagan, and God-fears, you know, the God-fears are those who... uh, are probably not, they're not Jewish, but they attend synagogue, they, they're following the law. Uh, his prayer is that they might be of the same mind in the same judgment. So Paul had, remember Paul came from Athens, you know, kind of the intellectual center of the first century, and he had very little success in Athens and now he can't, had come to Corinth and he actually has outstanding success. He had converted, you know, a, a wealthy God worshiper, God fear, Gaius uh, Justice, you know, Crispus, uh, Sosthenes. Uh, they were Jewish converts, God worshipers, um, who may, that, that, so that there is this clear Jewish influence in the midst of pagan Corinth. And then there are the pagans who, you know, there's the famous temple in Corinth. And all of these people, the wealthy, the the poor, the various religions, 
They're being fused into a singular culture, right? That's what. That's the reason there are these problems here. I mean, just think of the the issue of money. That that's going to be a big issue in the book of Corinthians. The the ancient society there was harsh differences. Maybe the top one point five percent. Uh, in some cities monopolized at least 20% of all the resources. So the very rich were very rich and the very poor were very poor. Uh, The top 10% may have owned the next 20% of the income. And the bottom echelon of society lived in constant hunger. That's why eating the communion meal is going to be a big deal for these people because they're literally eating from hand to mouth. They get some food, they eat it. We've been talking to Joel. It kind of reminds me of her in Waco. She tells us what churches she's been to, but always reports what food they serve at the churches because that's, that's key. Uh, the elite were very wealthy. They were very well connected. Uh, and they were vastly superior to the poor in terms of power and status. And of course, all that's going to be reversed in the church. Maybe this explains the degree of factionalism you know, in the community. Maybe it's the elite figures that are in the church, the very wealthy, the highly educated, you know, they had been, that's why Apollos, Apollos is this polished, this polished rhetorician who's been trained in Aristotelian rhetoric. Um, maybe that's why that uh, there are people like that. And then there are the uh, people that are the common laborers, you know, the great unwashed part of the congregation. And these two groups are coming together. We know even from the end of uh, the letter to the Romans, there is in Corinth a politician, one of the key figures in the city. Erastus is a part of the church there in Corinth. And so the culture clash produces a series of problems. How do we do identity in Christ when we're all coming from these different places? Some say, well, let's do it. You know, they're doing it on the basis of the factions. They're saying, well, I'm with Paul. You know, Paul's, maybe Paul meant them making tents. He's a laborer just like many of them. Or I'm with Paul, Apollos. I'm, you know, polished and educated. How do we deal with human sexuality? That's going to be a huge deal. These people come with very different practices. Incest, prostitution, celibacy within marriage. Christians, you know, asking about marriage and divorce. Uh, how, what do you do if you're married to a pagan? All of these issues. How to deal with civil and religious society. You know, idolatry is a concern. Can we go to the meat market and buy the meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Uh, and of course the spiritual gifts, prophesying, worship. How do we, you know, issues not just of the physical body, but of the body of Christ are going to be a big deal. Uh, And some are even saying, well, there is, the body's not important at all. They deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and thus they kind of say, well, we don't even need to worry about ethical bodily concerns. 
And so Jewish culture is being, you know, Jews, Greeks, upper class, lower class, pagan, Jewish. Out of this is being fused the culture of Christ. I believe that's what we're always about. Is that in some way, we're not simply departing from culture, but we're fusing and bringing together uh, and transforming, you know, we, we take things just like Larry Norman is going to take rock and roll and uh, why should the devil have all the good music? Uh, and so how do you eat is a big deal. How do you, you know, how do you take the Lord's Supper? Um, and so the two mistakes I think we might make here. Do we withdraw from culture and society? You know, do we become like the Amish? Or do we just forget the whole thing altogether? And uh, maybe we say that we can, you know, just do what everybody else does. And so there is, we have to negotiate this. Uh, do we just practice incest, idolatry? Well, that doesn't sound good either, does it? And so some may be saying, let's withdraw completely. And some may be saying, well, let's not even worry about it. The body and the soul are two separate things. And we encounter this today in, you know, our own culture, in our own church. Some people just say, well, the gospel, what is that? Jesus died for my sins. And that's really all you need to know. Atonement is all about my personal relationship with Jesus. My future destiny in heaven. And of course what that misses is the the whole point of what church is to be. It is to be the kingdom of God on earth. We are to be the culture of Christ. Uh, And that's the whole point of what Judaism is. Judaism is a socio-political cultural entity that the church is on a continuum with. And so if we divorce Jesus from the Jewish context, and there is little interest in the historical Jesus or with the notion that the cross is actually to establish an alternative kingdom, we'll just get a heaven, you know, going to heaven in the by and by, and here you can do whatever you want till you die. Um, the cross of Christ and the kingdom of God are often separated in our theologies. What Paul is saying, I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And he's preaching then the logos of the cross. And this logos of the cross stands over the logos of the Greeks, the wisdom of the Greeks, and the logos of the Jews, the law of the Jews. And so this separation of Christ from culture, the separation of the kingdom from the cross, has produced a very worldly church, I think today, that is very similar to the church at Corinth. And Paul then is going to bring together the preaching of the cross to bear on how people live. That may sound strange to us. How does the cross even have any bearing? Because we picture atonement and salvation as completely separate from that. 
But the Christian task is to address people where they are. And I believe the cross of Christ, the logos of Christ does that. Let me give you a little Larry Norman here. Larry Norman was playing with Janis Joplin, who, as you know, was a famous singer in the 60s, who died of a drug overdose. And I think he was the, you know, the, the opening act for her. And he was, out, he was on the wings of the stage one night watching Janis Joplin sing. And he decided to compose a song specifically aimed at her. Sipping whiskey from a paper cup, you drown your sorrows till you can't stand up. Take a look at what you've done to yourself. Why don't you put the bottle back on the shelf? Shooting junk till you're half insane, broken needle in your purple vein. Why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answer. The great struggle of the Corinthians, ethically and socially, The great chaos that surrounds them and surrounds us is one that we, as with Janis Joplin, bring on ourselves. Sex, money, drugs, ambition. Uh, But what we should, you know, how does Paul address this? He does it in a very similar way, maybe a little, uh, not quite as, you know, unsophisticated as Larry Norman. But look to Jesus. Look to the kingdom of God. Don't look at the anarchy that surrounds you. He says, you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. In everything you were enriched in him. It's an accomplished fact. In all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Jesus was confirmed in you. He says, you're not lacking in any gift. You're waiting the revelation of God. And this will confirm you to the end. You have the means through the heavenly city come to earth to to be held blameless until the day of Christ. And what I'm saying here is that sometimes we might imagine that reality is the struggle. That salvation must mean liberation through political struggle, economic struggle, psychic, you know, psychological conflict. As if what Christianity is doing is in some way uh, that it is necessarily engaged in this way. And that's the way the world, that's the way, uh, uh, you know, even an Aristotelian philosophy, there's always the idea of keeping at bay a world that is essentially in conflict, as if that conflict is ultimate reality. But what Paul is setting before them is the heavenly city founded in Christ, the peace of Christ, that is the reality that trumps all other realities. That is, virtue is not the virtue of resistance and domination, but it is witness to an original peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's what he means in that opening statement. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God 
which was given given to you in Christ Jesus. This grace trumps all of this chaotic cultural uh, conflict that surrounds you. And so Paul is declaring the ultimate reality, which should be their controlling, our controlling vision. The cultural forces raging around them are in no way definitive. Not the ruling Jews, not the leading political rulers. Uh, None of these are in control. Uh, Larry Norman, when he was... I've been reading up on Larry Norman this week. He he was very disappointed with his career because, first of all, the church was very slow in accepting him. And uh, even... Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, said, well, there's no place for that kind of music in the church. And so he was rejected by the church. But then, of course, the secular culture wanted, you know, the music was too Christian. And he wrote a letter then in disappointment to Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you know, Francis Schaeffer was kind of the key theologian and missionary and thinker in the 70s. And um, just talking about his struggle. And Schaefer writes back a letter that's very Corinthian in tone. He says, I'm sorry that you've had a hard time with the Christian music world. Schaefer writes, I understand that the walls have to be smashed and that sometimes this is a lonely walk. I feel we have a double responsibility. We must say that Christ is the Lord of the whole world, and therefore we do not have to make everything into a tract. That is, we don't need to just say, uh, you know, it's the withdrawal and say, oh, culture's bad. But we need to claim culture. Looking at the wounded world, we do have a responsibility that each of us is a teller, a witness in our own place. We can eat meat from the market, Paul says. We need to go into the market, Paul says, even if it has been sacrificed to idols. Paul tells us that the idol, in fact, is ultimately nothing. The great gods that may seem to oppose us, they do not really amount to anything. We do not have to make everything into a tract, Something that does not engage culture, but blasts it as if it is inherently evil. The gospel exposes the false world of sin. But how does it do that? Paul says that there is this false wisdom. There is this false religion. There is this false understanding of the law. There is the false idol. There's nothing there, he says. To be a teller in our place, we must recognize the place that we're in. In the heavenly city, in the kingdom of God, virtue then is an original virtue, not built on resistance and domination. God's peace is given to us. We do not overcome culture. We do not subdue it. We don't conquer it in that way, but we begin by recognizing what is real and what is unreal. 
When we lived in Japan, we lived in a town called Scuba Science City. And in the middle of Scuba Science City, which was supposed to be the new center of Japan, they originally they were going to move the government buildings there. They were going to move you know, the educational center there, which they did. And they were going to make it a research city, which they did. They never moved the government. And they asked an architect, Isozaki Arata, to design a center for the city that would represent this new image of Japan. And of course, what they had in mind, Arata said, well, why don't we use the Capitoline Hill in Rome as an example? And of course, the Capitoline Hill, as I understand it, you go up a series of stairs and there's this kind of, uh, kind of mountain and on the top of the hill stands the Roman emperor. And the founders of the city says, yes, that's exactly what we want. But Arata had something, when he said the Capitoline Hill, I think they were thinking two very different things. Instead of a hill, you go down a series of stairs. And there's two streams of water that come together at the center of this giant hole. And at the very center of the hole, there's a drain. And the water goes down the drain. Um, it's, it's all, and Arata means that just the way it sounds. He's only explained this, by the way. He's written extensively. He's fluent in English. He's explained what he means in English. As far as I know, he's never explained in Japanese. So I don't think he meant this for the city fathers. He says the thing to be symbolized in this instance is Japan as a state. Willy-nilly, I was compelled to select a style that would stand for the whole Japanese nation. And of course, the idea is that there's nothing there. There is no center. There is no emperor. There is no system of business. There is no, it all flows to the center. And what's holding it all together is an empty center revolving around an empty hole and a drain. And he means this just exactly. He defined the central axis as, you know, capital, empire, politics. It all runs together, but there's nothing there. That's a very strong statement, very much like the idol is nothing. Culture, in the end, is not something substantive in and of itself. Rome, Washington, the emperor, the law, these are not definitive of reality. And to witness in the place that we are, we have to recognize that reality, that truth. Another Larry Norman song. Sing that sweet, sweet song of salvation to every man and every nation. Sing that sweet, sweet song of salvation and let the people know that Jesus cares. Where the idol or where evil is assigned some ultimate reality, the danger is that we may imagine that this is reality is what controls us. We may imagine that as Paul puts it, 
We will have to sin that grace may abound. But of course, the very point of the gospel in Paul's explanation in Romans and elsewhere is deliverance from that misunderstanding, deliverance from that idolatrous misorientation. The law has no substance. Culture has no substance in that sense. We have entire theologies that are built upon the notion that as Christians we have to deal with the world through the world's means. Just war theory. We have to be violent. That is anti-Christian. Calvinist notions of, you know, the necessity of evil. Calvin teaches, oh, that man had to fall and therefore God uses evil. That is an abomination. Wherever doctrine or theology allows for evil, it has taken the very definition of sin up into itself. It uses what Paul would call sin as if it is salvation. Human culture is imagined to be ultimate reality. And we must fight wars or we must, you know, in some way, God himself is subject in penal substitution to the laws of this universe. That is just a profound misunderstanding. This is the problem Paul is attacking in both Romans and Corinthians. The Jews would establish their own righteousness on the basis of their own culture, on the basis of their own law. And Paul says this is the very definition of sin. It's not just the Jewish problem, but this is the universal problem. You know, Paul, throughout Romans, he, he in the letter of Romans, you know, is the, uh, the problem of the law. He's saying the law, culture, is not an end in itself. And in Corinthians, he's making the same point. Culture, wisdom, human wisdom is not an end in itself. And when it is made its own end, it becomes sin. At the origin of the Jewish law and culture is the faith of Abraham and the example of Abraham. And this finds fulfillment in Christ. Law or culture apart from faith, Paul says, is void and nullifies the promise and can thus be fused with sin. When it's put in its proper place, though, is law evil? Is law sin? God forbid. Is culture evil per se? No, God forbid. They have their role. But if that role is made larger than it is in reality, then it becomes something. There is the misorientation. And so what we return to in Christ is an understanding that Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes as there before the fall. In the last book that he writes as he's facing death in prison, he pens a book called Ethics. And in this ethics, he describes then, he poses the possibility of an alternative that is to be found in the garden before the fall and restored in Christ. He says, man at his origin knows only one thing, God. It is only in the unity of his knowledge of God that he knows of other men, of things, and of himself. 
And of course, what he's pitting this unity of knowing and God is over and against the disunity of the knowledge of good and evil, the identity through difference. The reconciliation to be had in Christ is describable in terms of a counter-knowledge. Sin is not simply a problem of the will, it's a problem of the mind. It's a problem of recognizing the kingdom of God. And the faith of Abraham returns us to knowing all things through God. So in Corinthians, he calls this, you know, the, the counter-knowledge. You know, there's the knowledge of uh, the world, gnosis, maybe connected with Gnosticism. There's what he calls natural understanding. All of these seem to be various descriptions of what he calls in Galatians this present evil age. So that being saved for Paul means that one is delivered, he's saved from the logic of sin, the power of sin. The wisdom of this world is undone through the logos of the cross. And this is evidence then in unity, a unified mind. We come together in the mind of Christ. And this enables obedience unto faith. We're enabled to walk as Jesus walked. He calls this in Corinthians the logos of the cross. And it deconstructs the logos of wisdom of the law. It's a scandal for the Jews. Because it's a curse, you know, according to Jewish law. It's, uh, in fact, for the Jews, Jewish law would be the height of wisdom. Paul says, no, it's incomplete. It's foolishness to Greeks as it nullifies their very mode of knowing and wisdom. Paul says, God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. To run, a, you know, we could run this series of idioms together. The logos of the cross creates the possibility of unity, thoughts taken captive, obedience to God made possible through the body of Christ. And this displaces the body of sin, this world's wisdom, natural understanding. And in all of these, we recognize the kingdom is established in Christ. Palestine, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly kingdom, is the controlling reality. Let me close with just a verse from a Larry Norman song. The word is revolution, but no one's fired a shot. Each side has as its battle plans and a million counterplots. And the world is closely watching as we near the battle line. But if you're truly wise, you'll keep your eyes on Palestine. Let's sing our hymn of it. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.